I'm Elena Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. With continuous integration and continuous delivery, new tools and technologies streamline the process of deploying changes within minutes. Sarah Wells, technical director for operations and reliability at the Financial Times, explained the process of migrating to DevOps and Kubernetes. We talked about identifying good places to start a migration, DevOps, and chaos engineering. I'm here at KubeCon in Copenhagen with Sarah Wells, Technical Director for Operations and Reliability at the Financial Times. Sarah, welcome to the show. Hi there. You spoke at the main keynote today about how the Financial Times successfully migrated to Kubernetes and DevOps. I want to speak about this in more detail today. First, I want to begin just with a quick overview of the Financial Times for those that don't know about it. I know it's pretty big, but there might be somebody out there. That Absolutely. Yeah. So we're one of the world's leading news organizations concentrating on business news. And we publish a paper which is published on pink print. That's one of our sort of unique things. But as with a lot of newspapers, more and more people read stuff online. And we have a paywall, which is a very successful paywall, but obviously you need to manage that kind of thing yourself. So we have quite a large technology team, and it's very crucial to our business to have our technology working. And geographically, do you know where your readers are based on? Is it throughout the world? or? I'm probably not the best person. They are oh, okay. worldwide. Okay. Yeah. And... Is the business model subscription-based? It is. So fairly recently, probably about a year ago, our income from subscriptions overtook our income from advertising. And the thing about advertising is print advertising was a relatively, like, you could predict the income you might get from print advertising, but uh, online advertising is dominated by companies like Facebook and Google, and I don't think you can necessarily rely on it. So for us, focus on subscription is really important. And we have news that people want to pay for. We have business news. We have a lot of our subscription is through companies paying for FT subscriptions for their for the people who work there because it's part of doing their job. Okay. When I was researching for this, I saw it was founded in 1888 and originally distributed in paper, like you said. So as we move to the digital age, distribution is obviously changing. So I want to know when you joined the Financial Times, what was the process of releasing changes, releasing some of those software changes? So when I joined, I joined in uh, 2011, and the process for releasing was, well, like a lot of people at that time, it, there was a, quite a formal process. So you would go to a uh, change board to talk about putting a release into testing, and then as you got, um, so you might go to a meeting on a Tuesday to say, can I put something into test on a Thursday? And then if that went well, you'd go to test to production on a Saturday and we did around one release a month for our main website and at the time that was actually pretty good. I remember going to a ThoughtWorks event where they asked everyone to stand up and sit down according to when you know how, sit down if you've released more than once this year sit down if you released more than five times this year and actually I was probably in the last three percent standing up at that meeting at the time so it's amazing if you're relatively new into the industry you can't believe it but there were lots of reasons why we couldn't release more often uh, notably actually relational databases and schema changes and migrations which meant we couldn't do a zero downtime release and that meant we had to do it at a point where we weren't trying to publish as much news 
So we're basically uh, constrained by we still need to get the news out. So when can we take a break in publishing news stories? So you're saying there is a downtime that you had to take? At that time, yes. It, there was a downtime for doing a release, which is why we did it once a month on a Saturday in a pre-agreed time slot mm. for changes to the publishing and website part of the FT. Yeah. Would the users know about this? Like, usually uh, every Saturday? There's no Saturday? effect on the users. because Sorry, it's not the website. The website itself is up, but oh, the okay. ability to publish content was down. So really, it's our oh, editorial right. users that were affected. So it was fine. We didn't have an impact on, on people reading the news, but the issue is what happens if you're about to do a release and some big news event happens? Exactly. Yeah, or if you're in the middle of a release and some big news event happens. Oh so God. that kind of thing is really, um, that was a challenge. Yeah. Um, so it would be maximum of 12 times a year that we released. Yeah, especially now because there's this culture of something happened, immediately people are expecting instant news. So yes. uh, you would be a little bit behind if you know, you're waiting for a release and then... Absolutely, and I think everyone realized that there were, that this was a constraint. And so there were lots of bits of work aimed at allowing us to do this kind of thing more more often and the real key thing is the ability to do a zero downtime deployment mm -hmm. it's really important to be able to to release on a rolling basis in minutes so that effectively you don't we don't have any kind of communication with editorial about releases now we just release because we don't disrupt publication one of the things that you mentioned that we're slowing down the process was the fact that you were using relational databases right yeah was there anything else slowing down that stands out? So I think just what, things like the release process itself. At the time, it was documented in an Excel spreadsheet with 50-plus lines. It was largely manual. Someone went and did the release. We, weren't, we hadn't got that automation. And that takes time. And then often it's error-prone. And to be honest, if you looked at any of those release plans, there'd have been errors in it. You just rely on the fact that the person doing the release knows that's not right and they, they're, they're course-correcting during the release. What was being written in that Excel sheet? Can you say one example? Like, was it? Oh, so things like, go onto these four hosts and run this command on all of them and then check this URL to make sure that the right result is coming back. So very manual, very manual process. I mean, there were scripts, but someone's running those scripts. And I think a lot of people were there. And it, it's quite a big investment to totally automate your um, build and deployment pipelines. But that's basically what we did. So there were very few tools being used, like you said, this Excel. And a lot of it is just people were the tools, essentially. Yeah, we had a very complicated enterprise-grade build system, which had been set up according to how we wanted to manage things like change management, um, builds and releases. It was sufficiently complicated that effectively every developer development team had a Jenkins box sat underneath a desk somewhere to do a quick build so they could see what was going on before putting it through the enterprise build system. And it had a whole load of checks and balances that were done for the right reasons. But if you ask for every release to have another developer check a box to say, yes, they, they know what's in this release, no one's got time to do that for large releases. It operates on the basis of trust. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't give you anything. It's kind of quality theater. I see. And... What would you say were the main areas of opportunity that were identified? So the first thing we looked at was it needed to be a lot simpler to and quicker to provision a server. And that provisioning needed to be repeatable. It's that thing about of cattle versus pets. So I don't know if you've heard this, but we used to have servers that were pets. We would look after them. They had names. They were all different. Oh, and yeah. if they were sick, we would nurse them back to health. And now we have cattle. They are interchangeable. They don't have names and we're not sentimental about them. 
And I think that's a massive change and really critical. So being able to go from 120 days to get a server set up with everything installed when I first joined to minutes. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is build automation that works for your teams. So it's looking at that process and saying, is it better to be able to release stuff more quickly if we can fix it more quickly? Yeah. than it is to wait because if you wait and do a build every six weeks there's so much in it that if something goes wrong just finding out which of the things that's in it broke is a really challenging thing I mean we used to have to do git bisect to try and find halfway through the git commits to try and find the thing that had changed so zero downtime deployments and being able to do lots of them it's absolutely true what the puppet state of devops report says which is that the more you release the lower your failure rate Mm-hmm. because you're releasing a small change. You understand exactly what's in it and you have less of a gap between when you wrote it and when you deploy it. And if you can do zero downtime deployments, you can do all of your releases in hours and everyone that you need to help you if anything goes wrong is there. So half the problem we had on Saturday deployments is you've got to have people dialing in from home or coming into the office specially. And if something goes wrong, there's code from probably 60 developers in that release and they're not all there Whereas now, you know, the code that goes out is the, is the code of a particular developer and they're there. So, so the turnaround for fixing is so much quicker as well. So essentially, since this was happening on Saturdays, were people expected to work Saturdays or is it just a handful of people? A handful of people, but still significant, would be working to do it. Because we'd have the people doing the release, we'd probably have some t- QAs available to check that everything had worked out in the release afterwards. So it's very manual and it has an impact on people to be available for that. Yeah, and another thing I saw is having this sort of outdated processes also wastes people resources. I remember in a talk you said it took 24 hours to deploy a change and then there was an error, so 24 hours to roll back and then that just time, you know, that was wasted essentially. Yeah, this was like a famous attempt at release once when I was, this is the worst one we had where things went wrong quite early. So it was actually only a couple of hours into it that we decided to roll it back. And I say we, I wasn't doing it. I was supposed to be checking when it was all finished. Um, The rollback just took forever. And yeah, I think it was getting on for 24 hours. And you're obviously editorial. The journalists are saying, when can I publish the news? And actually, we did lots of other things wrong in this. We kept the same people basically handled the entire incident. But you can't do that. You can't stay awake all night and fix up something. So we learned a lot from that experience. We had a retrospective on it and we said, here are the things we need to change. But we already knew that we needed to automate things because computers are really good at doing boring things repetitively and doing them accurately. You want your humans to be focused on the difficult stuff. We briefly mentioned DevOps, so I just wanted to get a definition from you. What is DevOps? Or what are some of the characteristics of DevOps? So I think that it used to be there was a wall between developers and operations, and it's caused by different motivations. So operations don't want things to break, and the easiest way to stop something breaking is not to have any changes in it. But obviously developers want to get new code written. And that meant that developers would go ahead, they'd throw it over to the operations team, and it was their problem. So you'd have things where something was live, and ops had to restart a server every hour to keep it up. And for developers, it's like, that's okay, we can cope with that, but it's not much fun for ops. So I think with DevOps, it's trying to collaborate and making developers responsible for running their system. To some extent, they need to be thinking about operational concerns in everything that they build. So the way it works at the FT is generally the delivery teams operate their systems during working hours all the time. 
and they're there for escalation out of hours. We do have a first line ops team. But it means that you think about the monitoring that you write and you think about the resilience that you've built in and you're much less likely to put up with something that's not a great experience. And you start to build a much better relationship with the people who, that with, between ops and dev. I mean, effectively, your delivery team do both. And as a technical director, I guess one thing that you needed to make happen was to restructure the teams, right? Can you talk about the before and after? Well, I can, but I wasn't a technical director for any of this. I joined as a senior developer. Oh, okay. So I was actually part of those teams. I've only been a technical director since the beginning of this year. Okay, so when you were a developer, what was happening when you were a senior developer? So we've had quite a lot of changes at the FT, but the, the first thing was we started to move our integration engineers so sysadmins, into our teams. Mm -hmm. So they had a very strong sense of being a guild, so they all share information, which is great, but they're there sat with the team. So, so you start to have those tasks spread into things developers expect to do too. So we talk a lot about T-shaped engineers. We think most of our engineers now can do some things in great depth, but they can stretch a little bit in either direction. So our integration engineers can also code. And some of our engineers are very comfortable with the command line stuff and doing the kind of things integration engineers do. And I think that's been a big change. Like the profile of what you might do and what you would consider to be absolutely fine for you to be looking at, it has changed. The other big change we did was we moved to more of a sense of team empowerment. So we used to have a separate architecture strategy group that would make recommendations and guide teams in terms of the technology they chose. And a couple of years ago, we, there was a restructuring that said, well, actually, you're the best people to make the decision about what you should choose and you can choose to use it but you have to run it and so you potentially you might choose something that lots of other people know about you'll have a lot of help but if you choose something new that's fine but you will have to be the ones that deal with issues and that was quite a big change as well yeah I want to talk a bit about the migration process to DevOps for example what are good places to begin a migration? So I think everyone starts with automation. Automation of what? Of anything, anything that <laughs> okay. you can. It's like there's a meme of like automate all the things. It's so you need, if you're going to do DevOps, you need to do automation and you need to have continuous integration, continuous delivery. Mm -hmm. I think they're, they're sort of the basic stuff. A lot of the rest of the changes for DevOps are around culture. So it's a cultural change and you need to be encouraging everyone to consider that it's all something they should care about. So some of that is just by you set an example of showing that this is what you expect from people and you kind of give people something that's good, like the empowerment to make technology choices and try new things out, but you expect something from them in return. And I think that... Uh, we would talk about DevOps, and I think quite a lot of people at the FT didn't really know what DevOps meant. Yeah. But they could see what was happening in terms of, oh, now I can provision a machine. I don't have to fill in a form to ask someone else to do it. And I can build my own deployment pipeline, and I no longer have to go to this meeting to decide whether I'm releasing something. I make the decision. And it turns out that you know people are writing the code, and that, that team are the right people to decide whether to put something into production at quarter to five on a Friday. Yeah. They can decide whether that's a risky release. Some things it would be risky to do that, and you see teams deciding not to. And other things, it's like, well, it's a tiny change, it'll be fine. So not necessarily, if you're, let's say your release of the month is just going to be small things, you might not even need to do that the Saturday and have some engineers working on Saturday. We don't do that. There's almost no releases out of hours. I mean, there are a few legacy systems at the FT where you might have to do that, but any system that's been built in the last three years will be a zero downtime deployment in hours release, and the default is to do it when everyone's there. That's great. And 
you mentioned automation, pretty much of anything. But for example, in this case, I imagine that Excel spreadsheet, you know, just having some system, just running those scripts and things like that. Yeah, so you effectively build a deployment pipeline and everything is automated. So you might have, um, so possibly, so for example, in my team, it's uh, you tag a release in GitHub, it will get picked up and a Docker image will be built, pushed to a registry, deployed to a staging environment. And then there is one step where you go in and you say, that's good to go to production. So, so much of that stuff is now automated. It means that you, it's the same every time. It's the same on every machine that it goes to. And that kind of automation gives you consistency across everything. And that's the powerful stuff. Prior to DevOps, were there different environments to deploy to? Or was it just going once a month directly to production? Oh, no, actually, there were probably more environments prior to DevOps. Oh, no. Yeah, because, well, so maybe not more. So we had an integration environment, test environment, and prod. And you would go through the same process to put something into test. I mean, in fact, our, our process would be you put something into test, and then you test the rollback. Rollbacks don't normally work if you're including rolling backs, changes to a database. So then you would fix the rollback, try again to do the release, test the rollback again, and then finally you go and do it into production. So there were at least the same number of environments. In fact, I'd say there are less now because certainly for our website team at the FT, they really only have developer laptops and production mm -hmm. because they release almost everything behind feature flags and they expect to be able to pick up errors and fix it really, really quickly. So that's it. My team, the content team that I've been working with most recently, they have a staging environment because there's a lot of state in the system and they're trying to test how that interacts between different services. And there are developer environments for dev different development teams. They may be spun up for a while because you're doing something that you want to try out in isolation and then, then everything goes through staging to prod. Mm -hmm. And as part of DevOps, an important part of it is monitoring and alerts. What are some of the alerts that you find useful? Just a few of them to get an idea of types of alerts we can have in a system. So we have a health check standard at the FT where we say every service that you deploy that's a web app should have an underscore underscore health endpoint that tells you the health of that service. So in terms of application level checks, we are basically asking the team to make decisions about what it means to be healthy. But there are clearly uh, things you want to look at across all kinds of services. And if you're looking at PIs, it's generally good to look at uh, latency, error rate, request load, request rate. And if you're looking at machines, you know, you're normally looking at how much free memory there is, how much the CPU is being used. And that, those are the kind of things that we are monitoring. But we do expect the teams to be able to make a decision about what it means for us that a system is healthy or not. Uh, but you do end up with a lot of a lot of alerts and monitoring. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the panels here at KubeCon that you spoke at, they brought up the concept of chaos engineering. Yes. And you mentioned you're just at the beginning of adopting it. There has been some adoption. Just curious, have there been any things that you've discovered so far? at the Financial Times? I think you discover something every time you try and do these things. Yeah. And I'd say that, like, probably we, we'd say we've started doing chaos engineering recently, but frankly, it only got called that recently. Before we went live with our new website and our new content platform a couple of years ago, we totally ran exercises where we would make things break in live. So, you know, oh, I remember wow. running a thing where I basically turned off the ability to publish. I mean, I talked to editorial about it and said, oh, okay. is it okay if I stop things publishing for 20 minutes? And they were like, yes, we're in morning conference. So all of the journalists are in hearing about what they're planning to do for the news agenda that day. And I turned it off and I waited to see what would happen in terms of who would react. And the thing we found out then was uh, the alert we thought would fire didn't. Nothing went red. 
So then you have to change. That's the kind of thing you pick up very quickly. Is, so the alert didn't fire. Yeah. It, we were expecting it to, but it turns out it didn't. And those are the kind of things you catch. You try turning something off and you, you ha it's not just, is the system resilient? It's, would I have known that this had happened if I hadn't just done it myself? And that's the, I mean, that um, analysis is quite important. Yeah. To basically say, this is what I expected and I didn't get what I expected. And like you said, you, were, you turned off that in production, right? Is this what chaos engineering is about? Just thinking of something and taking it down or what does it involve chaos engineering? I think the idea is that you should come up with a hypothesis and it should be something where you expect everything to be fine because if you're doing it in production you really shouldn't be trying to break stuff. The idea is okay I think it will be fine if I scale down uh, the number of instances of this services in the EU because I think that my stack will automatically fail over to run out of the US and there'll be there shouldn't be you know shouldn't be any impact and what I should see is twice the traffic on my US system, yeah. no traffic on my EU system. So you have this whole hypothesis of what you expect to see and then you basically see whether you see it and sometimes you will go, oh, the traffic still appears to be Traffic still appears to be coming to my old system. We had this problem where um, we thought that um, the DNS lookups were cached for a much shorter time than they actually were. So we found a problem. We found a bug in the interactions between our system and another system where it was caching DNS for a long time. And so fa our failover had stopped working. But we would never have found that until we were in a serious incident if we hadn't practiced it. If you hadn't done chaos engineering. Yeah, if we hadn't basically been trying this stuff out. Because the systems nowadays are really complicated. So it's, and the interactions between all your services and the external systems that you work with, it's actually, it's probably easiest to try it out and see what happens than it is to try and work out what you think, or everything that you think might happen. And the important thing is to take action. So you, you look at it and you say, okay, the monitoring didn't fire, change the monitoring, run the experiment again. This time we knew that, had, that we'd turned this thing off. And you can also, if you don't want to go directly to production, you can run chaos engineering in a staging environment, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah, and, and we have done as well. But actually, some of the things I was running, I wanted to see what our first line operations did. And they're only going to they're only going to react to a production environment. Exactly. Yeah. And also, you have to be pretty sure that your staging environment is exactly the same as your production environment. And it's really it's a bit rare for that to be the case. Generally speaking, it's hard for a lot of companies to have real data in their staging environment because, for example, if it's personally identifiable data, you can't. So. It's not the same, and that's what will catch you up. And it's things like real publishers of content in our system will find bugs that all of our test cases didn't because someone in editorial will have done something we didn't think about. Yeah. So if we point. take those publishers and run them through our test system, we'll catch things. Okay, that's a good point. Before we finish, I just want to close by talking about leading teams. For example, the Financial Times went from not being agile to being agile. So what are some of the organizational changes that need to take place for this to happen? I think you... So the agile move had happened in terms of adopting agile ways of working. It happened before I joined. Oh, okay. However, it was agile where you would do a two-week sprint, but then you'd have to wait a while before it got made it out into deployment. But in terms of the sort of the wider agile thing of being able to release more often, you have to support your team because now they are going to be making decisions that they might have left to someone else before. They need to feel entirely safe to do it. So you 
cannot have a blame culture. If you want to be able to move fast, you have to you have to totally expect that someone in your team will release something, it won't work the way they expected, they'll fix it up and you'll then the conversation will be, how could we have found this better? What can we do to make it better next time? Not what did you just do? That's really, really crucial. And also, if you expect a lot of your developers, you also have to give them a lot of power over the, to make their own decisions. And that, that can be a really hard thing for a leader because you're used to making decisions. But to be able to turn around and say, what do you think we should be doing with this? Yeah. And there is a fine line because there's some things you can't you can't leave to chance. You you know things like security. You have to have experts, and sometimes they can say no. You're definitely doing this. Mm -hmm. But generally, we try and empower people. Mm -hmm. This reminds me of a quote you had this morning at the keynote from Jeff Bezos. Can you just explain this a bit for those that haven't heard the keynote? Yeah, so I think it's really interesting. He sends out notes to his shareholders every year. And a few years ago, he talked about decision making and he said that there are two types of decision. Type one is a decision where it's really hard to reverse. Uh, and type two is like walking through a door, you can easily go back the other way. And he says that there is, um, there's a heavyweight decision-making process associated with type one, but that we often use it for type two as well, because we're not used to the idea that we could just make a decision, come back and change it. And an example of a type one uh, decision where you really ought to think carefully before doing it, because it's hard to reverse, would be uh, serving off Article 50 for Brexit. So this is something that is not easy to reverse. Whereas most of the things we do in our world in technology, actually you can reverse. You can probably try and work out the cost, but you can make a decision. And I think what I didn't say in the keynote is that uh, Jeff Bezos also says that you should decide and commit even if you didn't think this was the right decision. So it's really important if you're having a discussion and there's two choices and the choice that gets chosen is not the one you'd have gone for, commit to it on the basis that, you know what, actually you might, you might come back in the future, but it, you don't want to be half-hearted. And this helps in what we were talking about in the sense that teams and people are now empowered to make decisions, but there's the thought that, oh, I can easily go back the system, you know, screwed up or something, because it's a seamless process, is that? Yeah, I think there's certainly a sense that it's okay to try something out. The bigger decisions, probably the teams would be more hesitant about, but that's for the leaders to show, illustrate the same thing, which is, yeah, we made the best decision at the time, given what we knew. And that may not turn, have turned out to be the best decision afterwards. And I think if you look at technology now, it moves so quickly. The stuff we're doing now, we didn't do two years ago. My first 10 years in the industry had much less change than I've had in the last year. It, just the pace of being able yeah. to do things is huge now. Yeah. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure talking with you. You're welcome. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you.